Welcome to the Mexico Business Now podcast. This is A View from the Top, an open space for industry experts to share knowledge, information, and expertise on the most relevant topics, events, and happenings on their corresponding sectors. Welcome to the Mexico Business Now podcast. In this occasion, we'll have a different modality, an energy roundtable. This roundtable will be moderated by Maria Jose Goitia and is brought to you by Mujeres en Energía Renovable México. Maria Jose, the floor is yours. Thanks, Sofia, and welcome everyone to this energy roundtable. We will talk about the implementation of ESG strategies in support of improved outcomes for business objectives. I'm very proud to introduce our speakers today. Joining us here is Maria Jose Trevino, Country Manager at Acclaim Energy Mexico. Lilian Alves, Director of Business Development at Mitsui Co. Infrastructure Solutions. And Yadaira Orsini, ESG Associate Director, ESG in Control Risks. I am really glad to be introducing this panel. We are proud that it represents female leadership in the industry, and we also like to thank our sponsor for this occasion, Mujeres en Energía Renovable México, an association founded by women in the renewable energy industry that fosters networking and the development of business opportunities, as well as growth and empowerment, and has led nationally international associated who represent manufacturers, developers, and service providers for renewable energy. With our further ado, I would like to start this conversation. My first question is directed to everyone. Why does energy play a key role in the transformation of economic dynamics towards a circular and more sustainable model? Maria Jose, if you like, you could be the first to answer. Of course, and thank you for having me on this podcast. First, let's make sure we agree on what circularity is before we talk about transformation it can have on businesses, operations, and communities. And at acclaim, Circularity is centered on three key principles. One is maximizing product utilization, two, recycling and or reusing materials from your manufacturing, for example, the utilization, refurbishing and sharing, and three, prioritization and use of renewables. So when you consider these three key areas, you should discover multiple strategies that include sustainable design, resource efficiency, And some I mentioned previously, which is like refurbishing and, and recycling, et cetera. And circularity goes at the heart of many of the business challenges brought on by the current world we live in. And as leaders, we have a responsibility to assess and evaluate the needs and justification for what companies want in their operation. And this means looking for ways to construct more localized supply chains, building resilience, into the organization to protect quality, business, brand, and cost structure. And energy itself plays a key role in this transformation as it allows businesses to utilize this resource in an efficient and strategic way, both to optimize cost and sustainability efforts, especially when we consider being smarter on how we use energy and how we purchase it as well. Considering the use of renewable energy resources, which allows a more sustainable model for any type of industry, really. Addressing these elements with circularity as a guiding principle yields for sure the benefit of new business models that can add value and provide a competitive advantage. And this competitive advantage, it can be a product with reduced CO2 emissions, responsible practices, etc., which all eventually add up and eventually partake in a favorable economic output as businesses are able to retain clients, enter new markets, sell more, obtain higher valuations, and more attractive access to capital. 
Thank you for pointing out the relevance of the meaning of circularity and how we should target the movement forward in that regard. Lillian, I would like to ask you the same question. Why does energy play a key role in the transformation of economic dynamics towards a circular and more sustainable model? Yeah, well, first, I want to say I'm super excited, very happy to be in this podcast. Uh, I think it's a great format and a great way for us to exchange some views on this topic, no? So I think from my point of view, I wanted to mention, actually, I think more than five years ago, I attended a, an energy conference and the main speaker said something that really stuck to me. And I think it really speaks to what we are talking about today. He mentioned that the the importance for us to be at that forum was essentially because the energy is the future of everything. So when we are talking about circularity, energy plays an enormous role on this. Maria Jose was just mentioning it's a very key component of what circularity means. And I think if we are thinking about moving towards a more sustainable model, energy is a key factor on that. So when we are talking about sustainability, we think about energy represents around 70% of emissions, at least when we are talking about Mexico. So if you are talking about decarbonization, you need to look at what kind of changes you need to make in terms of how you produce and consume things from a company perspective or from an industrial production perspective that has to do with how you're making your product, but also how your customers are consuming that product per se. So there's a lot of thinking that needs to go into that. I think Maria Jose mentioned a little bit about what has to do with like optimizing, recycling and refurbishing of the actual, let's say, primary sources that you're using to produce your product. From my point of view, I come a little bit more of like, what are the fuels or what is the energy sources that you're using to be able to produce all of that? And then from the point of view of the customer, how you're consuming all of this, no? So when we are talking about production, this has to do with consuming renewable energy sources, but also this has to do with making industries less energy intensive. So how can we incorporate best practices of energy efficiency, how can we monitor and learn from our production processes to consume less electricity. So that's extremely important. And I think we're moving a lot towards that. How can we deploy machine learning and artificial intelligence to really understand how do we produce things and how can we produce that using less resources and less electricity or energy? And I think there's a a really important role that we need to think about of transition fuels. And I think natural gas plays a very important role. We are right now in a situation of a very distressed natural gas market. So I think that highlighted even more the needs that we have within our system for that fuel. So I think those are key points that we need to think about when we are talking about, let's say, like a more sustainable model, no? And then from the point of view of the customer, of course, it's related to the economic dynamics that we are seeing. How does those changes in uh, customer behavior impact the way companies are operating? So we're talking about, for example, mobility. We're talking about how people are using electric vehicles, how people are using public transportation, how people are not using transportation anymore, and how that impacts, let's say, like the whole value chain that we're thinking about. So I think there's a lot in which energy 
plays a role here. And I think we need to think a little bit beyond just like the playing electricity, but also how can we go about fuel substitution? How can we go about optimizing the consumption of electricity per se? Thank you so much, Lillian. And I think it's really interesting how you point out that when we think about energy, we usually think only about electricity, but it goes further than that. We need to think about heat, about transportation, and how energy is actually a transversal element in all our activities. Now, I would like to go with Jaraira and ask her the same question. Why does energy play a key role in the transformation of economic dynamics towards a circular and more sustainable model? Thank you, Maho. And again, echo my colleagues, uh, thanks to you for this invitation and the opportunity to, to share some thoughts with you. I'm based in London, so I have a different kind of perspective. So I'm very interested to hear what all my colleagues are saying about Mexico in particular. And I also kind of want to bring a more global perspective, if you will. So for me, what really struck me about the question was obviously, we all agree that, you know, the transition to, to clean energy is a pillar of the a circular and more sustainable economic model. Without that, we can't reach that level of sustainability that we're looking at. So that's that's pretty much stating the obvious. It's also interesting to see the speed and the times of changes that are happening. And that's what really struck me about this. So it's really good to see and really encouraging to see how hard the sector has been working to become more accessible. And this includes both the technology, but also the costs. Just to give you guys an example of the extent of this here in the UK, for instance, in 2020, it was for the first time renewables had actually generated more electricity in the country than fossil fuels. And that's a big milestone to reach. We hear now that solar energy is the cheapest electricity in history. I remember when we started looking at this a few years ago, that wasn't the case. So again, some very encouraging signs and movement. However, the pace of the transition and the role that energy will get us there needs to be accelerated. And I think the problem is we're running out of time. And, you know, you have on one hand the climate projections, the climate change projections where everyone is calling for urgent action to stop global temperatures from rising. You know, I think the numbers are above 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius. So that gives us quite a hard north star that we need to address. And then the other element is looking at the global energy demand and the projections that you have there. So, uh, you know, more than today, more than I think it's 80% of the current energy consumption is, is from fossil fuels. And the reserve from fossil fuels is going to be depleted and estimates are around in the next century. So it's not like this is also going to be around for quite a long time. So, you know, I think the interesting point to that it might seem a bit bleak, and, and I know I'm not painting the most positive of all scenarios, but the good news is that making the changes that are needed at the speed that are needed to support the energy transition is possible, provided that we build a more circular economy. So basically, what this means is that a circular economy model is going to get us there faster. So that to me is really the key that this energy transition has in its ability to take us there. So using a more sustainable circular model will get us there faster. 
And this includes things like Maria Jose was mentioning in terms of what consists, you know, the, the greater recycling, the design for a second life, the disassembly. And these are all things that are really critical. I'll give you an example of that. The circular economy can help as a model to reduce the dependence that we have on mining. So one of the big controversies or tensions or contradictions, I would say, around this is how in order to get to a more sustainable future, we really have to invest in some things that might not be that sustainable. So for instance, the dependence, as I was saying, on mining to be able to get lithium or cobalt or nickel, which are all minerals that we need, particularly for energy storage, which is a big challenge that the sector has. And this recycling of these materials, instead of mining it by looking at a circular model, this could help recover metals for millions of tons of smartphones, laptops, hard drives, any other electronic devices. So that's kind of a very concrete example of how a circular economy can help us get there faster. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities, but we also think about the future. I know I was saying right now, this is what we need to do, but thinking about the future as well. And I wouldn't be a risk consultant if I didn't add this element here, but, you know, the problem with this is as well, it has unintended consequences. As I was saying, mining could be seen as one of them, but also thinking about the future, you know, in 2050, we could have a massive waste problem in our hands from panels or turbine blades, you know, as well. So this just really shows that the path to a more sustainable and, and circular model is long and it's filled with challenges, but obviously also quite a lot of, of opportunities along the way. Thank you, Jataga. And I will actually like to recover two key points from what you just mentioned, because I believe it would be quite interesting for our audience if you could explain them further. Firstly, the urgency to fulfill the energy transition. We have a very clear goal, which is to avoid further climate damage for 2030 and 2050. So I would like to hear your perspective on how the events of the last two years, the pandemic, the economic recovery after the shutdown, and of course, the Russian invasion to Ukraine, are challenging the pace of the energy transition. Has it sped it up? or slow it down? How does it affect us in terms of accomplishing the energy transition on time? And of course, if Maria Jose or Lilian want to jump in and comment, they are more than welcome to do so. Obviously, the pandemic and now the war with Russia have had devastating effects on the world supply chains. We've seen it all over in terms of disruption of supply chains across the globe. And that just shows how fragile our system is at the same time, right? It's, it's really elaborate and complex, but it's very fragile. So that's definitely put that vulnerability on the table. I do think that now approaches to economic recovery need to take these ESG or sustainability priorities more than ever, because we cannot speed up without being responsible about it either. So you can't, for the sake of reaching a goal that we all want and we all need, create these consequences along the way. I'll be talking a little bit more about that as we as we move into our discussion, but just because we have a, an urgency doesn't mean that we can't be careful about how we get there and how we recover. That would be the one key message that I would say, but I would invite my other colleagues to jump in. I would like to compliment there that it is a journey, right? It's a process and it, it doesn't happen overnight. And some of the pushes to be able to drive energy transition 
should be coming from collaboration between the government and the private sector. Here in Mexico, unfortunately, we do have some regulatory uncertainty that sometimes inhibits companies to make decisions around sustainability, around how they can actually incorporate energy acquisition strategies into their portfolios. And this slows down, unfortunately, the energy transition. In Mexico, we do have a lot of industrials. We do have heavy industry, automotive, petrochemical, plastics, et cetera, manufacturing, in general, cement, steel. And all of these industries are heavily contaminating and they are, globally speaking, in entering into different decarbonization processes. But they are a journey. We work with all of these industries and the urgency is there but they don't know how to start or they're scared of starting or they don't understand where the priority sits, what they can do and what they can't do. And so in order to make this happen, everybody has to understand that this is a journey and it's a journey coming from the internal operations, understanding how it is that we impact, how it is that we operate, how it is that we can use energy more efficiently, what type of fuels we use, what type of emissions we are putting into the atmosphere, CO2, methane, et cetera. And then seeing how it is that we can transform our business into making it more sustainable. A lot of the pressure is now coming from not the regulatory aspect, but more on the financial sectors and from their own clients in the supply chain. And so there is constant pressure. There's a lot of communication that has to go about internally speaking and externally speaking with all of the stakeholders from the board level down, from employees, from clients, from banks, from investors, from the stock exchange where you're listed. It's just an organizational effort that needs to come about in order to make this transition effectively and as optimal as possible, because there are a lot of challenges along the way. And there is, I guess, a the most facilitated route is being in coordination with all of the different departments that are involved in the decision-making for this more sustainable business model. Echoing a little bit of what Maria Jose just mentioned, I think we need to think about that. I mean, the energy transition is a global trend, is a global need. All of us are going to have to get into this boat and then move towards this direction. That being said, although this is a global trend, the implementation is local. So how companies, how even customers are going to go about the energy transition has a lot to do with what are the tools and what are the resources that we have on the ground to implement them. And I think that has been one of the biggest challenges, especially for international, multinational companies that are present in so many different geographies, different regulatory schemes with different set of tools that are available. In Mexico in particular, I think we are in a tricky situation in which we have a very clear vision of what is the path moving forward in terms of the decarbonization goals that we need to take on. But what are the tools that we actually can use locally to move companies, to move us as customers towards that? I think that has been one of the biggest challenges for us as energy suppliers to adjust, 
but also for customers as energy customers to adjust as well. And I think what we've been trying to do and working in a creative manner, trying different things is to how can we overcome this challenge that is, we see it as a short-term challenge because we have a bigger challenge or a more global challenge to tackle on. So at the end, I think a lot of the work that we're going to be doing here as energy suppliers or other participants on the value chain is how can we make sure that, let's say, this global vision of moving towards the energy transition can be implemented locally and in a way that works for companies, but also that still makes them competitive. After all, we are, let's say, in a global market and a lot of the decisions that investors, that customers that companies are going to be making are going to be also marked by the sustainability aspect. How can we make the most out of the resources that we have in a way that doesn't prevent us from producing the coming years? So I think this is considering the whole environment that we're seeing nowadays with risks coming left and right. This is very important because at the end, we cannot simply trust on the global networks. A lot of the implementation is going to have to be local. And I think the pandemic taught us a lot about this, the crisis that we have right now in terms of fuels because of the Ukraine-Russian conflict is teaching us a lot about this. So I think it's important to take on those lessons and focus on the projects that we need to go about locally as well. Thank you everyone for these answers. Now we'll move on to the second topic of our discussion. As you all know, ESG trends were created by the corporate sector to try to promote the evolution towards new business models that aim for sustainability. Of course, when we refer to sustainability, it does not only mean environmentally friendly, but there is a strong social component about social justice and welfare within this concept. So I would like to know, why do you believe considering social justice and well-being is key for sustainability strategies to succeed? I think we'll circle back and have Maria Jose start, please. Sure. So I think proponents of sustainability frequently emphasize the importance of adding social justice to their efforts, while social justice advocates increasingly incorporate the ideas of sustainability into their own agenda. So these efforts might suggest a convergence of two political movements, a coming marriage of environmental and social politics. But such integration, it hasn't been easy, I think, The sustainability and social movements may be coming closer together, yet much still divides them into two separate conversations that frequently overhear each other without easily merging. And if we look at both concepts, they aim at creating a balance, right, from a physical, material, and mental well-being balance that exists between the economic, environmental, and social aspects of a social and economic system. I personally believe that the two are intertwined. But many still see them as two separate movements, which hurts organizational effectiveness in communities it's intended to serve. Both are pressing issues with a great sense of urgency required. There's really no prerequisites of achieving one over the other. And I do think it's crucial to be able to think about how it is that constantly we're thinking of the sustainable way of looking things because there are multiple elements that change through time, right? Needs from the people, from the communities, just because of the different factors that we have around the world. So I do think that both need to be achieved at the same time to prove success and that we 
shouldn't see them as two separate movements rather than complements. Great. I think that is a very interesting point of view. Now, I would like Lillian to share her thoughts on why considering social justice and well-being is key for sustainability strategies to succeed. So I think it's hard for you to think about sustainability without considering social justice, especially when we're thinking about the definition of sustainability. It is to fulfill the needs of current generations without compromising future generations. So at the end of the day, Echoing a little bit of what Maria Jose mentioned, you need to strike a balance. We've seen studies that show that emerging economies are the ones who are going to be the most impacted by the effects of climate change. And when we think about communities that are on the margin, those are the ones who are going to suffer the most of those impacts. Actually, let me give even an example of something that we're seeing nowadays here in Mexico, more specifically in Nuevo León, where we are having a pretty strong uh, water crisis, where a lot of the industries, a lot of customers are having to rethink how they use water and how they reuse water as well. And when we are looking at which are the ones who are being the most impacted by this, Of course, this is something that is impacting overall the, the metropolitan area of Monterey, but the communities that, for example, cannot invest on water storage systems or don't have access to private water supply are the ones who are being the most impacted. No, so if we're thinking about other areas in which we're going to have a shortage of resources or let's say less availability for folks, we need to take that into account when we are thinking about sustainability. So I think this is a very current wake up call that we're having right now, something that we don't want to see being repeated, but at the end of the day, we are exposed to that risk, not only in the region of Nuevo León, but overall the North of Mexico. I think there's a lot of light that has been shed on this right now. And then other areas of the country in which we understand that resources are not going to be available always. So I think if we're looking to a strategy and how we're going to go about making the best use of the resources that we have in a sustainable manner, we cannot ignore the impact that this will have into communities that perhaps are not being visualized immediately or we don't see the impact directly. But if we don't take a holistic approach in terms of thinking about how we're going to implement those strategies, we would be failing into making them successful because some of these communities that would be the most impacted would be, let's say, ignored if we don't take into account the social justice point of view. Thank you, Lillian. Now, if please, Jadaira could tell us why she believes considering social justice and well-being is key for sustainability strategies to succeed. Thank you. I was at one point giving a presentation for some colleagues that are all risk managers, and they were wondering how you integrate ESG risks into existing company risks and so forth. And one of the questions that they asked was, well, how is this different? You know, companies have been doing investments on communities. They've been looking at social things. They've been looking at environmental things, at governance. So why is, what is different about this ESG boom, you know, that we are seeing? And I think the answer lies in what has come out of my colleagues. And I'm glad that we are all aligned in this, but it's this 
kind of interconnectedness and holistic nature that we talk about when we mention ESG. So we are no longer looking at environmental issues on its own, social issues on its own, and governance issues on their own. We're looking at it together. And that means that if one of those is missing or failing, then the whole thing fails. You know, so no longer these silos of disciplines and functions within companies, it's looking at these three things as a whole. And I will say in our experience working with companies, advising them on how to think about these things or start, we see that a lot of them have very much highly developed systems and targets on the environmental side of things for a number of reasons. One, because it has been on the agenda, rightly so. So there's a lot of pressure to move on that front and get aligned with the commitments and the 2030 vision and whatnot, 2050. Um, so that's one element. But also from a very practical point of view for a company, it's easier because it's measurable, because it's easy to identify. I have very clear indicators of what environmental good performance looks like. And the same can be said to some extent on the governance side of things, where it has been traditionally looked at from a kind of compliance point of view, anything from, you know, corruption and integrity and, and that kind of angle has covered the governance aspects for a while. But then the social part is the one that to me has been lagging behind and it needs to catch up to be able to be at the same level. And part of it is due to the fact that it's not easily measurable. It means different things to different people, depending on where you are. So that makes it a little bit more difficult to think about in the same terms as we would see environmental issues. So that's one element that I thought it was interesting to bring into the conversation. And the other element, and I continue to talk about the S again, because you look at certain examples that are happening within the movement and to this point of you can't have one without the other so if you look at the solar industry for example and i've heard this expression before where the renewable energy companies are set to be protected by the green halo and this green halo means basically they're imbued in sanctity because they have such a good purpose and they're the ones that are going to get us out of this mess basically so a lot of faith has been put in the renewable energy. However, that doesn't mean that there are not issues there on the social side of it as well. If you look at, again, going back to the solar energy, all the allegations and public reports around forced labor and modern slavery in the supply chain of solar panels, of the provision of solar panels, and that also has profound geopolitical aspects attached to that, which I will definitely not get into right now. But there are complexities around that. So that means we cannot look or we cannot be happy with a solar industry that is built on the back of modern slavery. So that's another example of what I mean by all these elements need to be aligned. It's not just having a very good purpose and existence because you're going to help with the renewable and energy transition, but it also needs to be sound from a social point of view. We have the same problem and this is an aspect that I think hasn't been discussed as much. I want to think that it's coming, but I think a lot about things like the upskilling of workers, for example. 
So as we move into this transition, we need new skills. We are working with new technologies. We need to upskill the workforce to be able to provide the demands that we will need for the jobs of the future, right? So what that means is there will be winners and there will be losers. And we need to make sure that we also think about the people that are potentially being left behind. It's these workers, it's their families, it's the communities that they're part of. And so these are the kind of big questions that we need to think about as we move forward with this transition. And I realize that I'm starting to sound like the negative one in the group, but, but these are things that I generally think are barriers that we will need to overcome in order to get there. But obviously there, we just need to figure out collectively and creatively, like Lillian was saying, how we go about this and what this needs to look like in each context. Thank you, Jajaira. Well, we're approaching the end of our conversation. So prior to that, I would like to have a final flash round where you could give us a final statement. And if within this statement, you could address the important issue of how does female leadership add value to the creation and implementation of ESG strategies and contribute to a better outcome, I'd appreciate it. I would like to point out this topic because let's remember that what we don't talk about, it's not in the agenda. And I believe this to be an important matter, mostly in this specific panel. So, Maria Jose, if you could start, please. Sure. So as a woman, I would obviously love to tell you that we bring more value than our counterparts to the creation and implementation of ESG strategies, but that would be wrong. So reverse discrimination in any form doesn't help our efforts or our communities to build these coalitions to achieve more equitable and fair societies for everyone. However, I will affirm that we as a group, we've been more and continue to be more adversely impacted when it comes to gender equality, equal pay, poverty, hunger, and education amongst other areas, which are included in these ESG principles that companies are looking at. As women, I think we should feel proud of the role that we're playing and the leadership that we're asserting to drive important issues like climate change, diversity, and sustainability through Mexico and the world. And the World Economic Forum, I recall it, I mean, they've stated numerous times that companies with gender diversity in leadership, they outperform their less diverse peers. And on average, their advantage is seen as around 50%, 48% higher operating margin and 42% in higher return on sales and 45% in higher earnings per share. In addition, gender diverse teams make better business decisions. It's proven up to 73% of the time. And there's a lot of studies that show how greater gender equality drives better education and health and faster and more inclusive economic growth and greater international competitiveness. And this calls for a stronger sustainable business. When we look at boards, so all the way up, women are adding different perspectives, opinions, innovation, strategies. It drives good governance and that and drives, it goes all the way down into the organization. Women on boards 50-50, they do an analysis every year. In 2021, they reported that in Mexico, we've gone up to around 10% women's on boards. However, only 25% of those women are independent board members. So that means that we're only 2.2% of the total women are independent. And that's only talking about public companies. If we look at Mexico, the majority of the companies, even large companies are family-based. And that's obviously a challenge there since there's a, a big culture aspect challenge that is embraced here when talking about diversity. 
And that means that also 25% of public companies don't have any women on the board. And so that's really impeding a lot of business decisions, driving sustainability into the agenda all the way down through the organization. Today, we're helping to drive the much needed changes throughout many sectors, especially government, the investment community, and social reforms. And when I look around and see so many leaders, women heading on the sustainability efforts in such large companies, for example, Amazon, Karen Hurst, head of worldwide sustainability at Amazon, managing director, alternative investments at Golden Sachs, Marine Jennings, Kate Brandt, CSO, Alphabet and Google, or there's a group sustainability officer at HSBC. So, I mean, women are driving change through these leadership positions, especially around sustainability. And I, I'm excited about the role we can and are playing in this important issue. And for these reasons, I think that women need to support and promote STEM throughout our country because this is also a challenge. We need to be able to get women into the pipeline from the start and all the way up into the corporate ladder. So we'll have to pass the mantle down to the next generation and we need to, them to be prepared to lead the country in any country, in any business to be able to transform society with passion, conviction, and intellect. And so we should champion ourselves and the next generation. Never forget that diversity and inclusion are helpful in lifting society and countries and businesses. And that obviously boosts profits and drives innovation and, and creates economic growth and also protects the planet. So thank you very, very, very much. Thank you very much, Maria Jose. Now, Lillian, I would like to ask you for your final statement and extend the same question to you. How does female leadership add value to the creation and implementation of ESG strategies and contribute to a better outcome? Yeah, and I think echoing a little bit of what Yadara mentioned, Maria Jose mentioned, when we're talking about ESG, sustainability, we're talking about a holistic approach, right? So we need to think not just through one lens, but looking at an overall context, at different factors. Also something that we discuss here about the different risks that we are being exposed to that are coming from a global perspective. So if we want to have different solutions, if we want to have uh, different results also from what we've seen up to now, we need to have a change in terms of what are the perspectives that we are taking to look at those problems, no? So I think in that sense, for example, having female leaders, this provides a different viewpoint, a different way to think about problems. And also studies show that a more balanced, more conscious of risks as well. So I think overall, this adds a lot to the business community, to society as a whole. I should add that beyond just female leadership, I think we need to think about non-traditional leadership. So when we are talking about, for example, who are the leaders, looking beyond a little bit of who have been traditionally the leaders in the past. So I think a lot of this runs through, let's say, male corporate leadership, but also in a way, wild male corporate leadership. So I think it's important, especially when we were talking a little bit about social justice and going beyond, let's say, the immediate impact that we are generating is to think, how can we have more diverse leadership overall and how that is going to have an impact on the decisions that we're making and the impact that we're going to generate. So I think there's two 
so much work to be done. Completely agree that there's a lot of work also for this generation, for the next generations. And it is something that we need to cultivate so we can see results being amplified and that some of, let's say, the impacts that we've seen in the past that companies, business were generating, how can we mitigate those and how we can do that through, let's say, different perspectives, considering the factors, the volatility that we face nowadays. So thanks a lot. It has been a great conversation. And I think these spaces for discussion, roundtable, exchange of views are very enriching. I think it helps also for us to open our eyes to different points that we haven't considered in the past. And it has been a pleasure to join this discussion. Thank you, Lillian. Now, Jadaira, please, your final comments, a quick conclusion, and if you could please allude to the question of how does female leadership add value to the creation and implementation of ESG strategies and contribute to a better outcome? Right. So I think obviously I want to address the female point first because I feel very passionate about it as well as, as my colleagues do. And I, the issue there is looking at complementarity and not so much we are better at this and they're better at that because I agree that doesn't lead us anywhere and it just kind of divides widens the gap even more. But it is about complementarity because it is a scientific fact that our brains are different and we think differently and we are better at some things and men are better at other things or the brains function in such a way that is better. So for instance, I think we have some skills that are absolutely necessary to be applied in the ESG space. So things like, you know, uh, looking at women as having higher dispositions for diverse problem solving or women having better disposition for increased organizational collaboration or looking at women as better systems thinkers. This is all scientific studies that have shown that these are skills that women excel at. And these are skills that, as I was saying, are needed for the ESG space. And they are needed to help drive policy, to help drive company procedures and practices, and to help make sure that uh, no one is, is left behind in this big agenda. So I think we have these skills that put us in a very good position to, to use them to our advantage and to enrich the conversation, to push for greater accountability as well. And I think one element to not go too far that I'm really interested in, and I've seen it in my colleagues, I've seen it in friends and where they work, is how we, by raising issues that are of importance to us, are helping our own companies to get better at valuing female opportunities and female presence in the company. And, and these are things that Maria Jose was mentioning, but you know, we can help improve our own company practices, helping them to lead by example. I work in a consultancy that helps companies manage risk situations, and I am part of the sustainability team. And I am the first one to say, where are our policies on this? How are we behaving on this? And, you know, we can be drivers of improvement of this in our own companies or workspaces. And I think we need to do that where we can. If there are women's groups in our companies, we should join those. We should push for that, for greater pay equality, for greater leadership positions, to have non-discriminatory recruitment practices and all the other policies 
that are women-friendly policies in the workplace, that's an area that I'm shocked. I'm constantly shocked, I have to say, at some of the stories that you hear today of the difficulties that some of our female colleagues have to face. And so we do have a big role within our own companies as much as the big picture out there. Thank you very much for inviting us. And I, I'm fascinated to hear my colleagues talk about their experiences in Mexico and glad to be part of this conversation. On the contrary, thank you all. This has been an amazing and enriching panel. Thank you again to Mujeres en Energía Renovable México for sponsoring this roundtable and on behalf of Mexico Business and the Mexico Business Podcast. I want to thank you all for being here today and sharing your very valuable insight. And to our listeners, don't forget to follow us. Leave a rating and a review on whichever streaming platform you are using to listen to this podcast. Don't miss out on our audio articles written by experts across all of our industries. And we'll see you next Monday with a new view from the top.